Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 18. If you don't have your own copy of the scriptures, you can find that on page 965 in the Pew Bible. Again, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse, or page 965. We'll start in verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Well, good morning. I'll ask that you flip over from the passage that you return to, uh, to the book of Romans and chapter 8. That passage that you just heard is a passage that talks about the power that we as believers have for spiritual transformation, for spiritual renewal. This comes about as a result of the Spirit of God working in our hearts, causing us to see Jesus and be transformed, be changed into the image or to become more like Jesus. And the reason why we're talking about this idea of transformation of change is because it is one of the six core values or dynamics of church life that we're talking about during this series. And uh, that is what I want to show you. So if you can have that on the screen, uh, we're looking at dynamics of church life. Uh, you can think of these dynamics as the properties or forces that stimulate change and growth in an organism or in an organization or is in our case in a local church. And while we can think of many uh, forces or properties that give change and growth and, and stimulate uh, flourishing in, an, in a church, uh, we have to narrow it down some t somehow, and so we've narrowed it down to these six. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the first one, which is the Word of God. 
And along those lines, we stated that the Bible is our life and our authority. I want to point out to you that there are some uh, causal connections uh, among these six dynamics because the Word of God at its very center is the good news about Jesus Christ, which is the gospel. That takes us to the second dynamic of church life, and that is the gospel. We dealt with this last week. And you might have thought when I introduced the topic of the gospel that we're going to be talking about a message for non-Christians to hear. But the point that I stressed, and I think that it was evident from Scripture, is that the good news about Jesus, that is that He is the Spirit-anointed King who brings us life and rescues us from sin, that announcement is not just something for non-Christians. It is the thing that we, you and I as Christians, need to grow in. And in fact, that's what spiritual growth is. So we can go into the third uh, dynamic, and that is spiritual renewal. Now, when we say spiritual renewal, I insist that the word spiritual be capitalized to, to make it clear that the Spirit is referring to God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about just some vague, spir- uh, generic spirituality. We're talking about an operation that happens as a result of God's Spirit working within us. And uh, God, and the, the, the slogan or the, the phrase that we're emphasizing here under spiritual renewal is that God's Spirit frees us to live more and more like Jesus in every area of our lives. So we have, first of all, the Word of God, the Bible is our life and authority, the gospel is the good news about Jesus. Jesus gives us God's Spirit and makes us God's children. Spiritual renewal, the Spirit of God frees us to live more and more like Jesus in every area of our lives. And fourth, we uh, focus on dependent prayer because when the Spirit operates in our lives, God's Spirit, as we're going to see in just a few moments in the, in the message, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, prompting us to cry out, Abba, Father. We cry out to our Father in dependent prayer. We tell our Father how much we love Him, and we ask Him for what we need. So that's the fourth dynamic. And then the fifth dynamic is we do this together as a community. So as a, as a church, and I appreciate Pastor Jason bringing this out uh, before the observance of the communion. We celebrate not only our relationship with, with God as our Father, with Jesus as our Savior, with the Spirit as our Advocate, but we're also having a relationship with one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. It's a loving community. We are committed to following Jesus in vital relationship with one another, which takes us to our final dynamic, and that is our corporate invitation is that we follow Jesus together. We are united in our mission. So those are the six dynamics of church life that we started this, uh, this series a couple weeks ago, and we're going to be focusing this time on that third dynamic, and that is spiritual renewal, spiritual renewal. Okay, so I have a lot of plants in my house, no credit to me, that's all my wife's doing, um, and uh, some of those plants, just a few of them, are fake plants. How would you tell the difference between a fake plant and a real plant? A lot of these plants, they're so, the fake ones are so clever in how they um, make them look, they look so real. So how would you tell the difference? Well, I don't, they may do this, I don't know, but I've never seen any manufacturer of fake plants making plants look wilted or lopsided. Typically, they make them looking healthy and, and right, they, they, they look almost a little too perfect, could we say. And the other thing that you can, the other difference you can tell is that if you were to wait long enough and watch long enough, the fake plants would never 
grow. They would never change. They would never become renewed. There's a fiddle leaf fig in the corner of our living room near the window. And I remember a few months, maybe even a couple of years ago, I looked at it. It just looked kind of lopsided, and one of the leaves was brown and, and shriveled. And it just didn't look all that great. We'll fast forward to today, and it's in the corner by the sun, and it is green and tall and looking healthy. See, living things grow. And what is true in the biological realm is also true in the spiritual realm. Living things grow. Real Christians change. They grow. And in, in this process that we call spiritual, capital S, referring to God's Spirit, spiritual renewal. And that's why I've had us turn to Romans chapter 8, because verses 12 through 17 raises the hood so we can look into the engine and see the inner workings of spiritual renewal. Because it's, it's easy for us to get into the mindset that, oh, I'm a Christian, and I've got that settled, so now it doesn't really make any difference in my life. But this passage, it helps us see that spiritual renewal is an indispensable part of the life of every Christian, and it must be an energizing dynamic in the life of Christians collectively as they organize themselves into a local church such as ours. And so this passage will, sh will help us grasp spiritual renewal by showing us something negative, something positive, and a responsibility. So we're going to proceed in that order. We're going to see that this passage helps us grasp this whole idea of spiritual renewal, this theme of being growing by the power of the Spirit by showing us something positive, something negative first, something positive, and then a responsibility. You see in, verses, in verse 12, it shows us a negative. It says, so then, brothers, this is Romans chapter 8, verse 12. You can follow along with me. It says, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. Here's what's being stated. <clears throat> Those people who have put their trust in Jesus Christ negatively are not under any obligation to what Paul calls here the flesh. Now, I need to explain to you what Paul means by the flesh, because you may instinctively think that he's referring to our, our bodies, like you, you see the flesh of my hand here, or the, your, your bodies. We talked about several weeks ago when we were doing, dealing uh, with a, a series on the incarnation. We, we said that God came in the flesh, that is, he took upon a body, but the word flesh has a much broader semantic range, a broader range of meanings than just the body. Paul here, you, you might think that Paul is dividing all of reality between spiritual and physical, but actually Paul's approach is far more nuanced than that. No, he's using the word flesh to refer to a, a, an orientation of life that includes attitudes and actions in which we're building our lives on something other than God. That's what he means by flesh. He means a, it's, a, it's a life orientation that seeks to build one's identity and entire meaning on something other than God. And, and you can see this uh, very clearly if you just go back a little bit in the chapter, because he says in verse uh, 6, for to set, um, yeah, verse 6 of chapter 8, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, 
but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So when you see the word flesh, just think on a mindset, an orientation by which we seek to build our lives on something other than God. That's the flesh. That's why in some versions you may have one in front of you that it translates this sin nature instead of flesh, just to avoid any confusion. Now, let me give you a couple examples of the way the flesh operates, the way your flesh or your sin nature or your, I'll give you another term for it, another way of building life apart from God on anything other than God. I'll give you examples of how this works. You're at, you're at your job, you're at work, and someone criticizes your work, just kind of dismisses it. And you feel a little bit hurt by that. Like, why'd she have to say that? And then you go home and you, you try to push it out of your mind, but you can't stop thinking about it. And it keeps you up at night. And you just find yourself just really hating that coworker. And you know that you can't punch her in the face because that would be socially unacceptable. But there's other things you can do to kind of get back at her, like maybe just ignore her the next day. Or maybe kind of criticize her work. Or be dismissive of her. Or kind of snub her. And, and if we can just zoom in on what's going on in your life, like, why did that upset you so much? Well, maybe it's because part of your life was being built on getting affirmation about what you've done. And somebody poked that a little bit, and when they poked that, it began to tremble. And when, because you were resting part of your weight on it, you began to shake too, and it upset you, and you responded in a way that was angry. You, you, what, what was going on here? You were, living, you were building your life on something other than God. That's an example of living according to the flesh. So from that, you might think, okay, so li- building your life on something other than God produces socially unacceptably, uh, unacceptable actions or attitudes. But I, I, it's very important that you understand that living in this way, living the way that Paul is describing here is according to the flesh or building your life on something other than God can also produce socially admirable actions. In fact, living this way can actually produce actions that strives very hard to conform oneself to the Bible. I'll give an example from history. In Oxford, England, in the 18th century, there were some young men, there were students at Oxford, and they formed what they called and became known as the Holy Club. The Holy Club. Can you imagine Oxford students forming something like that today? One of them, named George, wrote this in his journal. I began, like them, to live by rule and to pick up the very fragments of my time. So time management was an extremely important thing for them. So that not a moment of time might be lost. Whether I ate or drank or whatever I did, I endeavored to do all to the glory of God. I joined with them in fasting every Wednesday and Friday. That's from George Whitfield's journal. As time went on, George discovered a, a little book by, uh, written the previous century by name in Henry Skugel. It was called the, the Life of God and the Soul of Man. And as he read this book, he writes, God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. The book revealed to him not that what he was doing was wrong, but why he was doing it was wrong. He wrote, I learned that a man may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet not be a Christian. How did my heart rise and shudder like a poor man that is afraid to look into his account books lest he should find himself bankrupt? 
You see, what George and the friends that he had in the Holy Club were doing, they were building their lives on something other than God too. Although for them, it produced morally admirable life, life choices. It produced incredible, rigorous, on. Thank you. All right, I'll, I'll just, I'll hug the microphone. I'll stay, I'll, I'll, I'll do the whole speaker's angle. You know, they teach you to angle, angle the microphone, uh, angle in front of the microphone. So he, he the, the, the members of the Holy Club, they were building their lives on something other than God too. But what they were building their lives on produced really good actions. So here, here's the deal. By doing bad things, you can be building your life on something other than God. And by doing good things, you could be doing, you're building your life on something other than God. Here's what they have in common. It is this. Your actions, whether they are morally and socially admirable actions or they're socially unacceptable actions, they're not done out of love for God. They can't be done out of love for God. You see... It is the tendency of every human being, myself and you, everybody in this room, to build your life on something. Everybody's trying to build your life on something. It could be, your, it could be a set of relationships. It could be, it could be your job. It could be, it could be your children. It could be your baseball cards collection. It could be anything. And the choices that you make because you're building your life on that thing, if they're not God, they're living according to the flesh. If that, if that foundation isn't God, you're living according to the flesh. You're building your life on something else. And, and that's, that's what Paul is identifying here. Now, what is the engine? What is driving this? Well, if you look at, it, it, you're in Romans chapter 8, look at verse 15. He says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So what is driving this kind of lifestyle is a fear. Fear that you're going to lose something. Fear that you're going to lose someone's respect. Fear that you're going to lose your income. Fear that you're going to lose that relationship. It's this fear that you're try to, trying to hang on to what you have or that you may never get what you're hoping you're going to get. That, that it's, it's fear that is driving this kind of living. It's not love. Now, I, we're, starting, we're starting negatively because Paul is saying that if you're a, a believer in Jesus Christ, you are under no obligation to build your life on anything except for God. Although at sometimes, sometimes you will feel as if you must. He's here to say, and this passage says, we are debtors, but it's not to the flesh. We are debtors, but it's not to build our lives on anything except for God. And the end result of building your life on something other than God, as Paul writes in verse 13, is death. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. What in the world does that mean? It makes complete sense. If you spend your life building and building and building on something that is not God, you are building your life on something that can never give life. It'd be like if you were to go to a part of the country where they have potholes. I mean, not potholes, but like these underground bubbles. What do you call them? Uh, sinkholes. Thank you. We have potholes up here. They have sinkholes elsewhere. But 
these sinkholes. And, and you, someone, you buy a property and someone tells you, you should know that there's probably sinkholes underneath the ground. And you say, oh, I don't care. I'm just going to build my house here anyway. Don't be surprised when eventually a sinkhole collapses and with it your house collapses. If you build your life on something other than God, inevitably it produces and results in death. Now, what do, we, what do we need to know about spiritual renewal then with regard to this? It is this. You cannot be growing spiritually if you're under the delusion that you owe something to the flesh. Your, your spiritual growth and vitality will be utterly drained and diminished if you think, well, I've got to build my life on these other things. Paul is saying, we are debtors, but not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So if you, need, if you want to grasp spiritual renewal, spirit-given growth, you have to understand, as a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, I owe that nothing. I don't have to engage in that. I'm, I'm freed from it. That's what Paul is saying. He lays the foundation of it in verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, if you, you ask this then, well, negatively, I'm not supposed to build my life on anything other than God. Well, then how do I gain assurance that I can build my life on God himself? Because if, if you think about it, think back to the Holy Club. What were they trying to do? They, they were trying to gain favor with God. They were trying to claw their way up to God and, and pry open the door to God and get God to smile upon them by all the rigorous self-discipline that they were engaging in. The, the more you do that, the more you realize that God's expectations are insurmountable. That, that God's righteous standards are so high. How can anyone scale that wall? In fact, the more you try to do it, the more you will begin to, when you think you have, feel proud because you've done it and then begin to exude an air of superiority or when you begin slipping down the wall of God's righteous requirements, you'll sink into a sense of despair and then you might even hate the very God that you're trying to please. How, how in the world can you ever change from being a person who's building your life on something other than God to someone who's building your life on God, centering your life around God? Well, that takes us positively to this thing we need to understand about spiritual renewal positively. Negatively, it shows us a lie to reject, and that is the lie to reject is that we owe the flesh anything. Positively, it shows us a reality to accept, and the reality is that we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but here it is. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. For every person who has trusted in Jesus Christ that person, you, if you trusted in Jesus Christ, you have received what the Bible calls the spirit of adoption. Let me explain here. How did we get that spirit? How did we get the spirit of adoption? People have said that the Holy Spirit seems to be the missing person of the Trinity because we don't tend to hear a lot about him. And I think one of the reasons why is we, he's, he's less visible to us in the pages of Scripture, even though he's far more present than we would, uh, than we would think, is uh, because we often fail to realize that the Spirit of God 
our reference to the Spirit of God is embedded in the title given to Jesus. We refer to Jesus as the Christ. Jesus Christ. Now, just keep in mind that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. Jesus the Christ. What does, what does Christ mean? Christ means anointed one. Okay, that didn't help me much. What does anointed mean? Well, in the Old Testament and in other, in other cultures, they had a ceremony in which they would pour oil on the head of a prophet, priest, or king. The oil symbolized God's presence, and that was a way of saying this person cannot fulfill their functions as a king unless God is with them. And so they would anoint them with oil to symbolize this person needs God's spirit with them to do what they are to do. So when the Bible refers to Jesus as the anointed one, the Christ, simply, it is simply saying this, that Jesus is in full possession of God's spirit. So whenever you see the word Christ, think this, the spirit anointed one. The one who has full possession of God's spirit. So the spirit of God is everywhere throughout the pages of the New Testament because it is embedded in the name Jesus Christ. So when Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead, he came back alive, and then 40 days later he ascended to heaven as the, resur- the, the risen king, as king, he now has the authority to give good gifts to his people, the people that subscribe to him, the people that trust in him. Now what's the very best gift the King Jesus could possibly give. What's the very best thing Jesus could give? He, the very best thing Jesus can give is the life of God in us, the Spirit of God. He rises and pours out His Spirit upon those people who believe in Him. That's why when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for forgiveness of sin in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, the way to get the spirit of adoption is simply by trusting in Jesus, the Spirit-anointed one. That's how God's Spirit comes to us. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you have within you the spirit of adoption. Now, I explained the meaning of the spirit and how we got it. What does it mean that we, are the, that we have the spirit of adoption? The, it is the spirit who adopts us as God's children. So if you've believed in Jesus Christ, you have the spirit within you, and that spirit makes you a son or daughter of God, a child of God. That is what the spirit of God does. Now, there are many things throughout Scripture that we learn that God's spirit does. For example, in John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus says that the spirit will come, this is before Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, and he will bear witness about me. In John chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, it says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He says this is just incredibly significant because Jesus is explaining to us what the Spirit is going to do in our lives. He says, All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that the Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus told his disciples even before his crucifixion, Jesus said, the Spirit's going to come into you and he's going to take what belongs to me and he's going to communicate it to you. And indeed, that's what happened in the book of Acts. So this is the record of Jesus' followers after Jesus leaves this earth and now they have God's Spirit within within them and what are they doing? They are communicating about Jesus. They're living out the life of Jesus. So here's what all the things that the Spirit of God does for us, here's what it has in common. 
the Spirit causes believers to share in the life of Jesus. The Spirit of God causes the people of God to share in the life of the Son of God. You see, this is how you become spiritually renewed, capital S, by God's Spirit. This is the means by which the power of God's saving work comes to you. It's by God's Spirit. When um, we were talking about the, the solar project that our church is, uh, has been considering and voted on a couple weeks, uh, I was surprised, as many of you were surprised, to learn that a lot of the cost of the power that comes to us is not from the power plant, but it's from the, the cost of the, the power lines and just getting the power to us. Right? That's, that's, a, that's a big part. Just to get the power, uh, the electricity to your home, is, is, uh, th- that's a great part of what you pay for. Our, our salvation, we, we often are, are blind to the fact that a great part of our salvation is what it takes to bring it to us, and that is God's Holy Spirit. Now, don't push that analogy too far. I'm not saying that God's Holy Spirit is power lines, okay? So there's a limit to every analogy. What I'm saying is this, that there has to be some way in which what Jesus accomplished on the cross gets applied to me, and that is the work of God's Spirit. That's what the Spirit does. And what does, what does the Spirit do according to this passage? Well, look in verse 15. You have received the Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Here's what the Spirit does. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're trusting in Jesus, you have God's Spirit within you. What is God's Spirit doing within you? He is telling you something. What is he telling you? He's telling you that God is your Father. And he's doing it in such a way that makes you have such deep assurance so that when you look at God and when you think about God and when you act toward God, you're not thinking about him or acting toward him as some sort of malevolent deity or some bully in the skies or someone who doesn't love you. You are acting toward him and looking toward him as your father. That's what the Spirit is telling you. He is bearing witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. That's the spirit of adoption. Now, you see how this changes our entire mindset. Before, we thought we had to build our lives on something other than God because every time we think about God, we think about this vast, infinite spirit who has such demands on our lives that we cannot keep. But now, because the spirit of God dwells within us, saying to us, God is your father, when we look at God, what we think is, here is one who loves me. You see how that changes everything. You see how looking at God, seeing God as your father, and seeing God as your father is prompted by God's spirit living within you, changes you so that your actions are no longer motivated by fear, but by love. You remember, that was the, living by fear was the whole problem with building your life on something other than God. You're afraid you're going to lose it. You're afraid you're never going to have it. But now, when God's spirit within you says, you are a child of God, such that you cry, Abba, Father, there is no fear, just love. 
any work of obedience or any conformity that you attempt apart from your relationship with God as Father is slavish, fear-driven conformity. It's not true obedience. Let's go back to the Holy Club, for example. All those things those guys were doing, were they doing it because they knew God to be their Father who loved them and would never forsake them? No, they were doing it I don't know all the reasons, but it certainly wasn't because of that. They, they themselves confessed later on. It was not, we were not building our lives on God. So everything good they were doing, you can't even call it obedience. Well, that seems pretty harsh. Ah, it's because of this. The only kind of obedience that there really is, is obedience that's motivated out of love for God. Jesus himself said, this is the first and greatest commandment, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your, and your neighbor as yourself. All true obedience must be motivated by love for God. And any, any so-called obedience that doesn't come from love is not obedience at all. Here in Romans chapter 8, if you look at chapter 7 and verse 6, it says this, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What's the new way of the Spirit? It's this way. I obey God, not because I'm afraid, but because I love. Flip back um, just a moment. You're in chapter 7. Flip back one page to chapter 5. And look at verse 5, Romans chapter 5 and verse 5. It says this, And hope does not put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. Now, what does this mean? This means that the way you live and the way you try to live for God, if it's going to be true obedience at all, it must be motivated by love for God. And the only way for that to be your motivation is if the Holy Spirit of God is residing in your heart. I want to speak for a moment to the person in this room who has done many right things, many good things, but none of them, as you are now realizing, None of them was done out of love for God as your father. You volunteered for a charitable organization and it made you feel validated, but it wasn't out of love for God. You came to church week after week and it made you feel like somehow you were doing the right thing. But if you'll be honest, it was because you felt a little insecure about what other people would think about you if you didn't show up but it wasn't because of love for God. And you even tried to tell your kids the right thing and train them in the right way and it made you feel validated, but it wasn't because you loved God. To that person, I'd say you are serving in the old way of the law, but not in the new way of the Spirit. True spiritual renewal comes about in the life of a person who in their heart of hearts knows themselves to be a child of God because that person has within them the Spirit of God who is bearing witness with their spirit that they are a child of God crying, Abba, Father. So what they do, they do out of freedom and not fear. 
You are free to serve God. You are free to sacrifice to God. You are free to go to the charitable organization and volunteer your time, not because you're afraid that God in his sternness is going to squash you if you don't, or not because you're trying to validate yourself, but simply because you have been liberated by the Spirit of God to know God as your Father and do what you do out of love for God. You may answer me and say, but I... I've trusted, I, I prayed a prayer when I, was, when I was young. I ask you this, do you have the Spirit of God within you? Romans chapter 8, go back to chapter 8 if you would, in verse 11, I'm sorry, verse uh, 9 says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You are free in in Christ because of the Spirit to now bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's the evidence of God's Spirit at work in your life. I want to speak to the person who has been taught incompletely that since salvation is not by your own works, then it doesn't matter whether you obey. And you know that, and you keep on coming back to this, and no matter what you do, you think, well, at least I'm saved by grace and not by works. So it really, early in the end, doesn't matter. But practically speaking, your conscience cannot bear that. And so you try to make up for it in other ways. Do you know that when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he died not only to secure your forgiveness of sin, he died also to secure your freedom from sin? We have a one-sided view of Jesus when we think that all Jesus came to do was to get us off the hook for our sin. No, Jesus died not only to gain our forgiveness of sin, but to to gain our freedom for sin, from sin. And that freedom from sin is actuated by the Holy Spirit gradually throughout the course of our lives. Forgiveness is a one-time uh, verdict that God says, forgiven because of Christ. Ah, but the holiness of Jesus as it is communicated is a progressive thing. And that's, Jesus bought your holiness too. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring that holiness to your life in a process we call sanctification. So is obedience necessary to the Christian life? Absolutely. Obedience is the Christian life. Faith-filled obedience is why God saved you. To live a life of loving obedience to Him, that's why He saved you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, we're not saved by, by works, it's by grace through faith, and yet it is for works because we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. It is a twisting of the, of the teaching of salvation by grace that says that having been saved by grace, it doesn't matter then what we do. No, it is the grace of God that teaches us to die on godliness and worldly lust and to live righteously and upright lives in this present world, as Paul teaches in Titus chapter 2. Well, what does this mean for us then? 
and this is the third point, and that is our responsibility. I said that this passage teaches us about spiritual renewal. It teaches us something negative. Those, in Jesus, those who are believers in Jesus Christ owe the flesh nothing. You're not obligated to build your life on anything other than God. And if you try to, if you do, then it, you're working your way toward death. Positively, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father, because the spirit bears witness the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, what does this mean practically? There's a responsibility that we find in verses 13 and 14. There's a negative aspect and a positive aspect. Negatively, we are to put to death the deeds of the body. Now, I explained earlier that Paul's use of the word flesh isn't referring to the physical body, but to a life orientation that distances itself from God or runs from God or tries to build one's life on anything but God. It's the same as true of his use of the word body here. The put to death the deeds of the body, he's referring to those deeds that manifest themselves in trying to build your life on something other than God. What he's saying here is simply this. You reject those actions that are contrary to the character of God because that's not who you are. A Christian person is a person who has been born again, who has been, been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are a new creature. You're not that old person anymore. And because of that, the actions and the lifestyle that belong to an old way of living, you are to utterly reject. If you're to look in the mirror tomorrow morning and see a piece of mold growing on your forehead, you wouldn't say, oh, interesting, I guess I must be mold now. No, you look at that piece of, I mean, can you imagine? I, that would never happen. But, but I, I'm just thinking, this is what a ridiculous illustration. Under what circumstances would anybody find mold on them? But hopefully, hopefully it's so ridiculous that they remember it, okay? And that is that it's clearly not part of you, but for some reason it's on you, so the first thing you do is scrape it off. That's how Christians should view sin. This isn't me. I'm a new person. I'm indwelled by God's Spirit. I'm a child of God. That, that's, that, that proud attitude doesn't belong to me anymore. That dismissing of my coworker at work because she was critical of my work that doesn't have anything to do with me anymore because I'm not building my life on what people think of me anyway. You, you scrape it off because it's not part of you. You put to death the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the body. Negatively, you have to be stopping certain things. And positively, you are to be led by the Spirit of God. Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. To be led by the Spirit simply means let God's Spirit be your leader. How does God's Spirit lead? How do you know what God's Spirit is telling you what to do? The Bible. God's Spirit speaks to us through the Bible. And because those of us who are believers in Christ are indwelt by the Spirit of God, God's Spirit takes the Word of God and applies it to your heart to prompt you, to convict you. When you're doing something that's out of line with what a child of God should be doing, the spirit within you that cries, Abba, Father, is a convicting spirit. When you're doing something in line with the will of your Father, the spirit of God within you crying, Abba, Father, is an assuring spirit. 
To be led by the Spirit is to be sensitive to the prompting of the Spirit that he communicates through the Word of God. For example, and I'll just try to give you some ways in which this works out practically. Suppose you are obsessed with what people think about you. You just, you have, you, you give so much space in your mind to other people's opinions about you and it just controls you. You could, in your own strength, resolve to care less. But if you do that, I will warn you that it will produce a very harsh, in you a very harsh personality. Because you're trying to compensate for something, uh, something bad by something else bad. You're obsessed, or on the other hand, because you're obsessed with what other people think about you, then you can, you, you, you could on the one hand say, oh, I don't care what anybody thinks about me and, and just dismiss everyone's opinion, not listen to anybody or not, not care. Or on the other hand, you, you can try to make everybody happy with you. Or you can, because of God's spirit within you saying, you are a child of God, rest in God's love for you regardless of what other people think of you, so that you are free to love them whether or not they think well of you. You see, that's, how the, that's the logic of spirit-given renewal. You are drawing from the solidity of your relationship with God as your Father to give you the strength to obey, not out of fear, but out of love. What about worry? You are overtaken with anxiety. You're constantly thinking about what if this happened? What if this happened? And just a lot of your mind space is given to a whole a messy gray fog of potentials and what ifs. Well, you could, on the one hand, try to control everything and make sure that nothing ever got out of your control. Or on the other hand, you could just kind of give up trying and give in to despair. Or you can, listening to God's spirit within you, who says you are a child of God, realize that everything that happens in your life is happening from the hand of your heavenly father who loves you and is working all things for your good and his glory. And even though things are hard, and even though things may happen that you don't understand why, you know they're from my Father, and I can trust Him. Or maybe, I'll just give you a third example, you're inclined to overwork. You, you find that your job is just taking more and more and more of your energy and more and more of your time, and it might be that the reason why, if you're to be utterly honest with yourself, is because you really trying to avoid thinking about other things you might need to think about or avoid other relationships you might need to give attention to and maybe because you have begun to build your identity on something that you're finding in your career you can you can try to scale back somehow 
Or you can, drawing upon the fact that God's spirit is within you, saying you are a child of God, rest in who God has made you to be and the relationships that God has put around you so that what you are doing at work or at home or at school, you are doing not out of fear but out of love. This is spiritual renewal. This is allowing the spirit of God within you as a believer to constantly lead you to repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ in a pattern that happens again and again and again. And what should be happening on an individual basis? I've been speaking primarily to you as an individual. Should be happening to us collectively as a church. That collectively we be repenting. We be aware of things that we are doing as a church or not doing as a church that are out of line with the will of our Heavenly Father. This is why spiritual renewal, capital S, spirit-given growth, must be a dynamic of life at Trinity Baptist Church. Because when we are so interconnected, when, when any one of us, when you or you or you or you, that when we stop growing, it affects us all. When you allow idols to overtake your life, or when you begin building your life on something other than God, the entire spiritual climate at this church is affected. So we, we must all individually, so that we can collectively build our lives, our identity on God as our Father, listening to the Spirit of God who testifies within us that we are indeed the children of God. And as Paul goes on to say, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I begin by saying that there is a difference between fake plants and real plants. Real plants have imperfections. They do. But real plants also grow. Fake plants are hard to tell from a distance, but there's a difference. The real plants, though beset with infirmities and spots and distortions, are over time growing. So a Christian should be as well. And, and it could be that it doesn't, I say this quite a bit, but it does not matter how long you have claimed to be a Christian if in this moment you are realizing that none of what you have done as a Christian has been done because you know God to be your Father and of love, then my friend, this, is, this could be the best day of your life. To cry out to, your, to, to Jesus to be your spirit-filled, spirit-giving king so that finally you could receive God's spirit and begin obeying him, not out of duty or fear, but out of love. This can be the best day of your life. I don't, I don't care whether you're a member at Trinity Baptist Church or how long you've been a member. This could be the day of your salvation. And, and maybe you've never thought yourself to be a Christian because you thought the whole idea of Christianity was pretty silly to begin with. But you sense today that there is, there is a spirit of God and he was at work when you heard us singing, behold, behold our God. And you, you sense the conviction when we sang about the, 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 the nails in his hands and his bearing the wrath of God. You know he did that for you, my friend, so that you can turn to him in faith and trust him and you could do that this morning as well. And it could be my believing friend that you have, although you know Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you have begun to put, put some of your weight on other things other than God, or you've forgotten completely that, that you ought to be living as, with God as your Father and therefore obeying Him out of love, and you need to just reorient your life toward that. There's something for all of us to do in response to this, this teaching. Would you bow your heads, and we'll pray about it.
I'll have Brian, if you would, play a verse of the song we're going to sing as a response. Just take some time to pray, and then he'll lead us in a response song.